0: When you're faced with adversity, do you flounder or fly? I'm Simon Ratcliffe, and on Turning the Tables, I share candid, powerful stories of people who have turned around adversity in their personal or business lives to find new purpose and meaning. Welcome to episode 17 of Turning the Tables with my guest, Sharon Lloyd-Barnes. Just before we get into the episode... I'd just like to say a big thank you to everybody who's been listening to the podcast so far. It means a great deal. And if you're new to this podcast, welcome. It's great to have you on board. Have you ever had periods in your life when you felt like you're not the person you want to be? An imposter held back by an internal dialogue that was sabotaging your life. Often it takes a dramatic event a relationship breakup, the loss of a loved one or a health issue to break the chain and for us to kind of reassess our lives. When that event is stage 3 cancer, it must shake you to the core. But that is what happened to Sharon. On the outside, Sharon is one of the calmest, collected, friendly and together people you're ever likely to meet. It just didn't feel that way to her inside. A single mum of two boys, one of who has autism and special needs, Sharon had spent her life doing the right thing and putting on, as she says, a happy face. Yet it was this battle with cancer, which fortunately she won, that had a transforming effect on Sharon's life. She even describes it as a gift.
1: For me, cancer was definitely a gift. I've I've kind of referred to it as that even when I had it, because it woke me up from a difficult situation that I was in, um, you know, relationship-wise, and um, it just made me view everything differently.
0: We started our conversation by talking about her childhood and how that had shaped Sharon's outlook on life. Okay, my guest today is Sharon Lloyd-Barnes. You've run your own business, you've brought up two boys for the last, how many years?
1: Oh gosh, mm, 14 years?
0: 14 years on your own. Yeah. Um, one of your boys has autism, you've had to deal with that, and then five years ago you were diagnosed with yes. stage 3 cancer.
1: Yeah.
0: Which you've happily recovered from. Yes. And... <laughs> um, you still have time to have gone back to work plus working for a number of different charities now the podcast is about overcoming adversity Yeah. you've had more than your fair share yes how have you developed the resilience to have kept going all through that
1: Um, it's one of those things you don't really know you've got it I suppose until other people comment because it's just me just going through life But I think looking back, it just, it goes back quite a long way to when I was growing up. I think for for me, there was a sort of milestone when my parents divorced and I, um, through circumstances, my mum left and I stayed, my brother and I stayed with my dad. And um, because it was the 70s, another family member said, you know, it's your job to look after the boys now, meaning my dad and my brother. It was uh, was a kind of role I took on at, I think, 11, 11, 12. Um, and that's probably what started it. There wasn't really, it didn't feel like there was room to say, I'm not sure I could do that. It, it was, uh, I mean, I think to be, I think that family member would be horrified if they knew the impact, you know, it's had. But I, I have to say, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's, um, if it's given me strength and resilience, then, then that's good. But I, c- I can see things that I've maybe missed out on.
0: What, what age were you at when that, that happened?
1: Yeah, 11. 11, nearly 12. Yeah, just started secondary school in Edinburgh.
0: Uh, and in practical terms, what, what did you have to do? What, was that, what did that look like?
1: Well, that looked like sort of clearing up the house, doing, you know, making supper uh, for my dad and my brother. I think at some point, I do remember my dad getting a housekeeper at some point because he worked outside of Edinburgh. He worked down in the borders and so um, was often back, you know, after we got back from school. So it was that kind of latch. I was definitely a latchkey kid. Yeah, I, I again because I just kind of walked into it. It didn't feel like a hardship. It was just kind of what we had to do. I do remember there was definitely a housekeeper for a couple of years during my teens because we both, you know, hated her. <laughs> it was she was really bossy and shouted at us, and so you know, actually, I quite enjoyed having that control. But yeah, and then my my dad wasn't well so towards sort of t- when I was about fifteen, sixteen, he had a breakdown and. Wasn't working, and I didn't realise till years and years later when I had my own children that he'd been through quite a lot of treatment and various therapies. And uh, so, yeah, I just remember that that being a really difficult time, sort of caring for him essentially, and sort of managing this, you know, my exams and school and friends, and it that just I don't know, not feeling like a childhood necessarily. Childhood for me, when I look back, sort of stopped at eleven or twelve, and then it was kind of moving into a different role.
0: So I guess it felt sort of responsible from an early age and a lot of people were anything but responsible.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I did do my fair share. I do remember I used to go, I, I always loved music and um, got into that kind of alternative music scene and I did used to go nightclubbing. <laughs> I'd go to this nightclub in Edinburgh, which had the best nights were a Thursday and a Sunday. I don't know if it's still the case. And I remember, I think I'd dress up, put my makeup on on the bus on the way there so I did, I did, dad didn't have to see it um, but he'd go where do you think you're going young lady and I'm like I'm going to the Hoochie you know which was the club and uh, so that I think that was my way of that feels like that was my act of rebellion I didn't drink alcohol I didn't smoke I just went to dance in this nightclub I'd get home at 3 in the morning and then get up and go to school the next day
0: was that do you think that was about sort of almost escaping from that responsibility and yeah. stuff you, you had
1: I think definitely, because again, look, I've only, it's only just struck me looking back. My friends were all older. I mean, they were people that I met in the nightclub um, and they're still friends of mine now, you know, years later. So that isn't, I hadn't even really thought about that before. I'm trying to think the age gap was probably, they would be early 20s because they were all working and I was still at school doing my GCSEs or O grades as it was up there. So yeah, I think that, that was my act of... That doesn't exist. It's over there. This is my world.
0: And then you went to um, the Sorbonne, I understand.
1: Yeah. So I that, that kind of fell into my lap. I didn't look to do that. Because um, that
0: sounds very sort of, you know, very aspirational for me.
1: No, yeah, well, yeah, true. I suppose, um, I mean, I liked French. I was doing it at school. I had decided I wasn't going to go to university. I wanted to move to London, I wanted to work in either film or music, didn't know how to get in there. I I honestly can't remember looking back why I didn't go to university. It was just, I just need to get on and do it, was the sense that I've got. And then a friend, a family friend, had just finished her year as a no pair in Paris. And she was, you know, at the same time doing this course at Sorbonne. So she said, I've got, there's a vacancy, do you want it? Yeah, that sounds great. And so I think it was just before my 18th birthday, I, you know, went out there remember my dad sort of dropping me off near the altar tree and saying you know see you later no mobile phones or wow. it was quite funny looking back um you know how different we are with our children now so um that was it and I was there for a year I do, I do remember I mean I, I had school French you know but the family I lived with didn't speak any English and by the Christmas I came back to Edinburgh for Christmas and um I, had, I was sort of stuttering in English. I'd got so into the language and the culture out there. and Yeah, that was a really good year. And I, I remember thinking, the world is my oyster. You know, I just got out of Scotland and Edinburgh because and, that felt so small and provincial. And I just wanted to kind of go and make my mark somewhere. But yeah, I suppose constantly trying to... I mean, I've still got it now. I've got a notebook that I had at the time where I was trying to write my film script Because I just, that's what I wanted to do. I remember saying I wanted to be a film director Um, because by then movies were really big for me as well. So I went to the cinema a lot on my own in Paris Um, because they used to show everything in English with French subtitles of the best cinemas there. So, um, so yeah, I've still got the, the sort of first three pages. I
0: mean, have you ever tried to pursue that?
1: No. It's sort of in the back of my mind
0: any any reason why you, you did
1: um yeah I think it's confidence in in my own ability so I think until until recently I think I looked at things in quite a negative way mm-hmm. uh, my mantra I remember from sort of my teens onwards through my 20s was if you look on the negative side you're never disappointed mm-hmm. <laughs> which I look back at now and go, well, that's a terrible mantra. I mean, that doesn't, mm-hmm. that's just really depressing. But I think it was my safety net to kind of set things up to fail. And I don't know whether that's because I'd been through a difficult time or, you know, it was just me zipping myself up and being uh, ready for it. I, I don't know quite why I did it. It's just probably the opposite of how I feel now. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's surprising me about having to switch my, my, um, sort of internal dialogue so radically in the last few years is that I'm constantly surprising myself because I go, in all these years I never do public speaking Mm. uh, and I've just said yes to speaking to 300 people in two weeks. Mm. Of course, I'm terrified about it, but it's an old belief that just doesn't serve me anymore, so I'm just trying to boot it out the window. Mm. So, yes, I probably wouldn't have said yes to doing this a few years ago. I mean, and do you think that
0: what happened five years ago, the cancer and recovering from that, do you think that's been part of the Oh of that
1: a hundred percent. Yeah. Absolutely. It for me that that experience was um the kind of final boulder in my face to say, you've got it wrong. Not wake up and smell the coffee, but you know it's just not working for you. The way you're thinking, the way you're experiencing life, is just not, it's not you, in a way. Because I, I i really feel now, even though I've still got things I want to do and achieve, and I, I just feel I'm, for the first time probably in my life, I'm absolutely me, if that makes sense. I just feel really happy with my decisions, not being really honest and true to myself. Um, and I really believe I had to get so ill to kind of get there. I just was missing missing all the other red flags along the way, of which I think there were many.
0: I mean, this is a difficult thing to say, but do you think that it was coincidental that that you got the cancer, or do you think somehow or other it related to?
1: Oh yeah, I I I mean, I it's not. Um, so my view around it, it makes some people really uncomfortable. I know it's not a popular belief because I think we, um, the whole language around cancer is, you know, we've got to beat it, we've got to fight it. It's a war that we've got to wage. And I have to say, I almost felt, even while I was having the treatment and I, I had cancer, physically had it, I kind of got this light bulb moment and, and just felt quite peaceful around it. I mean, I was obviously scared of dying because that was a reality at the time. Yeah. But it wasn't related to the cancer. It was, it was almost, oh my God, I've, I've learned this too late. You know, is it too late? I really want an opportunity to do this differently and think differently. So it was it to do with lifestyle? Not necessarily. I mean, I'm a pretty healthy person. It, I, I didn't tick boxes of being, you know, overweight, eating badly, drinking too much. No. But I think the way I thought, was a sort of self-sabotage of, yeah, it was just self-sabotage. So I suppose I, I then started to read quite a lot, in sort of after my treatment, I sort of started to read quite a lot about, you know, I suppose it's what you'd put in the new age thinking bucket of uh, law of attraction and, you know, certainly around sort of alternative treatments to cancer. And, you know, there was were, there were just, there's so much evidence out there to people that just literally thought their way out of it. Um maybe did the odd tweak physically to, to a bit more exercise or whatever. But I, you know, now, now I know what I know and it's just cemented my beliefs and my own experience around it. You know, would I have had all the classic treatment? I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, I think chemo for me, you know, essentially diminished the, the tumours that I had and, it, you know, gone into my lymph nodes. And so it, there was a time issue. But I, yeah, I feel just so strongly that because I had this dramatic turnaround around in my head. It just feels like, I could I have cured myself just by mm. thinking mm. more positively?
0: Mm.
1: So, um, well, of course
0: you'll you'll never know. But I mean, it's yeah. it, it's been one of the good things to come out, isn't yeah. it? Yeah.
1: Well, I think I think that's it. I just feel if more, you can
0: ever say it was a good thing to come out of.
1: Yeah, well, I do. But I, I I think like it was a gift. I think for me, cancer was definitely a gift. I've I've kind of referred to it as that even when I had it because it woke me up from a difficult situation that I was in, um, you know, relationship-wise. And it just made me view everything differently.
0: Some people would find that, I suspect, shocking.
1: Yeah. Uh, that
0: idea, wouldn't they?
1: Yeah. Yeah, because I think, well, again, I think it's just, it's it's uh, easier for us as you, as people to think that it's bad luck and it's either it's genes or, you know, somehow we have no power over it. And I, I like to think... Well, if it is a wake up, it's a kind of healing mechanism in a way. It's your body's way of saying you've got to do something differently. My case, thinking differently, because I was getting so stressed. Um, uh, You know, as I said, in a very difficult situation that I stayed in for too long, and I was just in too deep. And I think I was just producing so much cortisol all the time, trying to in fight or flight mode. So there is a chemical explanation. Well, for Well, I was going to say. I
0: mean, you know, there, there are there's some You know, I just didn't think there. myself
1: into it, no, but I, I was because stress ex- obviously is, exactly. a, is a
0: major uh, yeah. factor uh, or exactly. contributing factor. It's not the factor, but it's certainly one of them. Massively so. con-
1: yeah, contributing factor, and I think that uh, you know, when you're in a sustained period of of time where you're you're in that fight or flight mode, um, just sort of battling on, as it were something's got to give and I think that was definitely my I just I felt it on on every level physically emotionally psychologically um so for me it just feels empowering to have that feeling that actually I would be amazed if I got ill again because I feel better Mm. but you know if I if it did come along again I think okay well I haven't quite got that right yet I'd still feel like I'm in the driving seat Mm. around it Mm. which
0: works for me. Mm. I mean on a personal level I can relate to that I mean I haven't had anything like a significant health issue as as you had but you know I did have a period of time when I struggled very badly with health and um, I I agree with you in a way it was a catalyst almost for a different mindset so it's interesting how that can happen but just going back to um, what you were saying about being that fight or flight mode and what what was driving that at the time well you said over quite a long period of time didn't you
1: yeah well I I mean I think it goes back you know a long time I think I think it's the mode I set myself in to to live by if that makes sense um so it's it's almost it's difficult to work out when I didn't feel like that because I think I, I've, I've always sort of lived on my nerves a bit. Felt like I wasn't quite good enough, and people were going to fight. You know that imposter syndrome that everybody has. Yeah. I just I think I felt that for a very long period of time, throughout my work, for even friendships. You know, I was just you know always striving. It felt like because um, I feel a lot more relaxed about things now, and a lot more kind of not attached. The wrong word, but I've I've have let stuff go. And, and that's had a really positive impact on all, all my relationships, actually, family, friends. I mean, do, can
0: you, because obviously that was a personal characteristic you, you've had for yeah. many years. I mean, can you relate that back in any way to having to take that responsibility so early? And, and yeah, it
1: probably is about taking responsibility and feeling like that was your job uh, by a very well-intentioned you know, family member. it it was you know a sort of I think subconscious I just I didn't even think about it It was just okay this is my role now and I do remember you know sort of did launch this years and years of sort of people pleasing in a way I've got to do the right thing to be valued appreciated liked you know whatever the circumstance was yeah that's definitely shaped the way I've lived for a long time trying to be the right person in the right place.
0: Were you sort of conscious of that? I mean, was it something that you sort of knew was a something that was influencing your behaviour or, no, or was it just literally me, firstly, part of you?
1: It was just part of me just wanting... Uh, it was fear of, of not belonging, fear of being rejected, fear of being cast out. And I guess that goes back to, you know, because even the language around my parents' divorce was, you know, my mum left... That's all I heard from people and, to, uh, you know, even up to now. And that's quite a powerful statement. And actually, if you if you flip it and say, well, they the relationship didn't work out, you know, they split up and I ended up staying with my dad. You know, that's got a lot less sort of power around it and a negative spin, if you like. But being left by your mum, uh, which is how a lot of people couched it, was so had, uh, it had an impact on me
0: so you kind of felt somehow or other that 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 was a rejection and you saw your father being rejected and therefore presumably you then thought yeah well what if that happened to me
1: yeah no absolutely and I, and I think I think what was played back to me time and time again from other people was you know your mum left you you know mothers don't tend to do that and I intellectually I, I would rebuff that and say no no, no but you know a new relationship and I understand why but I think just years and years of that it seeped in somehow mm. I mean that, that I find that fascinating that mm. you know even if your your own mind is saying one thing you can just um you, you do you can get brainwashed almost without noticing it by other people um because I've never really felt that she abandoned me at all I understood why I was living with my dad but it's definitely informed my relationships and how I interact with other people
0: do you think that 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 influenced you in any way in your career or your early life and your marriage
1: um yes definitely I mean I you know I, I met the man I then married when I was quite young I was 21 and I knew that I wanted to be married to him and I think it was that you know he was the sort of the safe place, the kind yeah. of, um, it was like the cookie cutter, you know, I'm gonna get married, have family, get a home, you know, it was all this, that that's the route that you're supposed to go on. And again, I look back now and think how much of that was informed by what you're supposed to do rather than what felt comfortable, right for me. Um, I mean, I have no, absolutely no regrets about it, but it's just interesting that I think I did up until very, very recently, I, I was always trying to do the right thing um, and follow the right path.
0: What's interesting is that, um, goodness, we met so many years ago. Yeah, around um, then. Uh, I when, then. I met you before
1: then. I bet you before I met my husband, yeah. Well, I think yeah, I was about 18, our, 19. First,
0: first jobs yeah. in advertising. Yeah. Um, but I think you were always someone that one would look at as actually being incredibly well together
1: i know well that's very well makes presented, me presented yeah.
0: very very sort of in control and isn't that an interesting yeah contrast
1: yeah it's like an iceberg isn't it or that's probably a bad analogy but you know on the surface because whenever i've ever shared that with people that i'm nervous or anxious or worried or you know this is my how my brain pro, pro, my brain processes things that's what comes back is that mm. you just don't give that no. impression at all no. you're so confident and, and i suppose
0: that's figures doesn't it because given what you've just explained you know you don't want to show any vulnerability yeah do you? so no so exactly. right the opposite. exactly so it's all that sort of desire to please and want yeah it just to look like right i was in control yeah in control yeah yeah yeah
1: and that you know it's just not good for you essentially it's um Something's got to give. Mm.
0: So given how you're describing, you know, your your character um, then, you had the boys.
1: Yeah.
0: And looking after two young boys must have been a a challenge for
1: you. Yeah. I I remember looking back, you know, that was kind of perfect, you know, the sort of family, 2.4 kids kind of thing. It all started really well. And then... I, know, I just remember being really, really happy because Campbell, our eldest son, was—he uh, was diagnosed actually with epilepsy at four months, so it was really early. And that—and that's you know when the first wheel came off, I suppose, where like, oh, I oh, thought this sort of stuff happened to other people, you know. Um, and I genuinely had felt up until then because I've got a diary that I kept sort of pretty religiously from just before I got married to then, and I had regarded my life up until then as just really lucky like everything had fallen into my lap like the thing to Paris and and it's really odd because again when I look back I think well my parents had got divorced which actually in the 70s was quite unusual I mean I didn't know any other friends who lived like that um and particularly to live with your dad rather than your mum that you know just didn't know anybody still to this day that's quite unusual so um, but my taking of that had been—I've you know, just been so lucky, you know. This was the first bad thing that happened to me. It was was you know my son being diagnosed with something so challenging. And um, but it, yeah, I just, I, again, I, I suppose just trying to sort of dive in and make it make it a positive experience is one thing to say, but just, just sort of deal with it. You know, it was quite—I remember it being a, a sort of catalyst for lots of things then, because obviously epilepsy is a condition that affects you, you know so strikes out of the blue as you know it's just it's um so I just I remember that being the first year of his life which being really difficult uh even on his christening I had to take him up to his room because he, he just kept having seizures and that he kind mm-hmm. of missed out on the rest of the day
0: um uh, and, and did you did you know what That was, I mean, did you have a diagnosis?
1: No, I mean, you know, thank God for, it was before mobile phones, certainly before mobile phones that you recorded on, like film. So I I had the old, whatever it was, video camera. Mm. Because I took him to the GP and, you know, he looked fine. So, which was around the corner from my house at the time. So the next time it happened, uh, I got the video camera and videoed him and uh, whizzed him around to the doctors again. And she sent me down to St. George's, a brilliant hospital down the road. Um, and, and he was diagnosed on the video alone as having what they called at the time, Petty Mal, which just, you mm. know, these absences. Mm. Um, and so when they struck, they would be, you know, several times a day. And then he would sleep for about three or four days afterwards. And it was just, you know, I just remember really scary because he was such a you know, nearly 10 pound baby, just really fit and healthy. And, um, and then just before his first birthday, he had an MRI scan um, to sort of find out you know, structurally what was causing this. And um, that, that's a moment of, you know, that's carved out in my mind because I remember Ed, my ex-husband and I were standing in the sort of ante room because you can't go in, it's obviously magnets. And there's our tiny, despite the fact he was nearly 10 pounds, our baby sort of lying on this. Uh, I think they gave him a general anaesthetic just to keep him still in this massive MRI machine and uh with the noise and everything else and the person who was doing the reading called for a couple of doctors to come in to look at the scans while they were doing it and I thought that's not good mm-hmm. and um so we were taken to another room and he they sort of seen what they called a tumour it was always referred to as a tumour but it was an area of brain that hadn't formed properly so it was a kind of sort of holes in it basically um like a sponge and that was what was causing it kind of you know an interference in the brain structure so that then triggered a whole round of you know Great Ormond Street and um, epilepsy specialists and surgeons Um, and initially it was we can't operate because it's the left temporal lobe and it's speech and it would just be too dangerous and then when he was um, about three a surgeon called William Hartness at Great Ormond Street said i have never seen you because i think we all used to go every 3 months for an appointment and he said i've never ever seen him not screaming and lying on the floor um, and that's just not no way to live so i'm going to do the surgery and see because i think it'll improve his mm-hmm. you know his his life it's dramatically and um and so we did it and and it, i'll never forget again it was you know six hour surgery um just sitting there knowing you know what was going on but he um we went down to see him we bumped into mr Hartness in the corridor at great ormond street and he said you know it went really well it was the size of a a large plum he said we've taken out and uh, he's in recovery now so we went down to see him and he said just just You know, obviously the the danger was and we had to sign all sorts of stuff that he would lose his speech because it was left temporal lobe, and they took out quite a large chunk of it. And we got into the recovery room and he was uh, sitting bolt upright when he came round, singing Postman Pat. (laughs) And he wanted a packet of cheese and onion crisps, um, which they brought him. He ate those and then sort of collapsed on the bed and didn't wake up for about four days. But because he... (laughs) would Because he'd he been there. We were like, well, this is fine. Actually, I don't really care what happens. Yeah. Um, and about two weeks after that, he was singing in his nativity, um, Twinkle Twinkle, with this bandage, like a cartoon bandage around his head. Crazy. And I just thought he'd literally had this flip top, you know. Um, How old was he there? He was just before his fourth birthday. Crikey. So um, yeah, I mean, it just it goes to show the resilience of, you know, when you don't know what you're going through. Um, I, I dare say if I've been an adult, you know, I just had literally half my head taken off a couple of days ago and this great big hole sawn in my skull. You wouldn't be on stage two weeks later, but I just think, you know, he had no idea. He was just awake again. And um, so, yeah, I've just got huge admiration for him sort of bouncing back from that subconsciously and, uh, you know... Well, it has transformed his life. I mean, he hasn't had a seizure since then, so that's a good thing. Mm. Um, you know, he has lots of challenges and he's got a learning disability and he's got autism. And so communication with other people and reading the world is is a massive challenge every day. Mm. But um, I just think, you know, the innate spirit and resilience that he must have mm. just to get out of bed every day, knowing that, because he has got a level of awareness that he doesn't, fit and he can't do stuff that other people can do he, he he's now started to notice that at, at 23 um and, and ask questions about it so um yeah i just i just really admire him
0: for yeah. well i mean obviously we, we can completely relate to that because yeah you know, our, we our share that experience. A similar similar issue with epilepsy and, and so yeah and i i remember it was very traumatic and Mm. and incredibly worrying but I mean given again going back to what you were describing about the way you dealt with things you must have that must have been a real challenge for you
1: yeah well on two levels I like to look at it as you know a I was terrified of what other people thought of us yeah uh you know even good friends and family because the epilepsy, not so much, because I think, well, that's a medical condition. It's, you know, it's terrifying to watch. Lots of people witnessed it. We're like, oh, and you get the sympathy and the compassion. Um, but when, you know, he was diagnosed just before he had the surgery, so he was diagnosed at sort of, um, almost three as being on the autistic spectrum. And it's that, that challenging behaviour that other people can't handle so well. Certainly couldn't then. One um, of was probably less awareness. So that just compounded my feeling of, you know, not good enough, not accepted. Um, Because, you know, we couldn't even go into a restaurant because he didn't like anywhere that was different. Um, So going to people's homes was a challenge. Um, I couldn't go and sit on the common with friends because he would just run away. (laughs) It was, you know, we couldn't travel. We didn't go on holidays. It was really difficult. So... You know, you could argue that was my first challenge to stop worrying about what everybody thought, and I, and I guess I must have done. I must have stopped at some point.
0: Um, well, because you couldn't
1: really otherwise wouldn't have left the could house. You, could you <laughs> no. any other way? No. Yeah, it's interesting to think about it like that. But it just very very quickly becomes your life. You know, that's your family dynamic. But through throughout yeah. all of
0: this, yeah, you you've exhibited an amazing drive to.
1: I mean, did you take that,
0: that quality, if you like, that drive, that resilience into, you know, the, the battle with cancer?
1: Yeah, I think so. I don't, I didn't feel like I was being resilient. I think I, I felt like I was being very accepting. And I, you know, the, the, the beauty, the plus and minuses to running my own business at the time because, uh, you know, there's no sick pay. So That was, that was a hardship. But I did decide just to give up work. I had a couple of clients that I'd just sort of taken on and, and both said, well, let's just pause activity and you just get well. And so I, it became a sort of full-time job to get well and it, it, it wasn't sort of lying, feeling sorry for myself. It was, well, I'm going to go to the theatre and I'm going to go, you know, I was very lucky. I lived very close by to where I was having chemo and I met somebody who lives two streets away from me so we became very close friends and went to cinema, you know, in the morning. We'd go to the Silver Surfers Club at Clapham Picture House, where they serve tea and biscuits to the pensioners. And then we'd turn up in our little cancer hats <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and have tea. It was just, I, I just remember really looking after myself. And it felt, it's a bit like, you know, when you go on holiday for two weeks, you haven't done for years actually, but you go away, you you suddenly start to kind of depressurise and, and really relax and that's when you appreciate how hard you're working the rest of the time or how you know crazy the, the pace is and I think that's what I, I realized in that year I suppose of treatment because it was of eight months of chemo and radiotherapy that yeah not doing all the stuff I was doing showed me how much I have been doing yeah does that make sense
0: uh, so- I mean in a way the sort of it gave you a good reason to let yourself off, really, didn't it? All yeah, that, it did. All that pressure of needing yeah. to keep up appearances and yeah. and that
1: no, absolutely. And in the in the in the hardest, cruellest lesson ever, going to the you know to your point about appearances, you know, I, I mean, I lost all my hair, eyebrows, eyelashes, nails, everything. So it was literally like, here I am without any of the other stuff Mm. and it's funny I remember when I I was diagnosed I went into this sort of this McMillan nurse took me into this sort of separate room and sat me down and said oh you know have you got children and I said yeah I've got two sons how old are they um I think must have been 16 and 18 at the time 15 17 and uh so she gave me these pamphlets saying how to tell your children you have cancer and I and I remember looking at her saying have I got cancer And she said, well, what's your understanding of what the consultant just said in the other room? I said, well, they showed me the scans and said there's a cancerous mass, I think was the word they used. But I didn't read that as cancer. So it was either me trying to look on the bright side. (laughs) And it just made me realise how naive and kind of, it just wasn't part of my life experience to date. You know, I didn't know anyone that had cancer. I didn't have any family members that had been through it so or died of it that I knew of so yeah I had this real ignorance around I just thought a cancerous lump meant it was a cancerous lump that could be removed that day and then we all move on so that that was really strange it was a kind of surreal oh I've got cancer.
0: So during the the therapy you were you were still working and I guess you still had the
1: yeah. I mean, like the work was to a minimum and I really, I I decided I was just going to get well. I was yeah. going to do, like, I started yoga. Um, I juiced every day, you know, ate organic food, really cut down on meat, sugar. I did all, I did everything I possibly could just to kind of treat myself well. And, um, but yeah, I guess it was the boys, that that was definitely the hardest bit was, was to A, telling them and then looking after them and making sure they were, not worrying while I was going through it so my youngest was doing his GCSEs I'm pretty sure it was that year or the year after I was coming out of it and you know we never really spoke about it I think the only communication the three of us had about it was was my hair what it was doing at any particular time so they they had nicknames so I was I was the egg and Voldemort when I had no hair and then as it grew in in these ridiculous sort of mullets and crops it was Frank Lampard, Slim Shady, you know, that was all sorts <laughs> of... Do you in think the that was their
0: part. way of sort of trying to oh, normalise it? And, yeah. And they didn't want to know, obviously, yeah. the reality.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I and I think, did I set the tone for that? I don't know, because that, that is definitely my way of handling things, is to make it into a joke or uh, to try and put other people at ease.
0: And Even though that can't have been the way you were feeling?
1: No. No, I mean, I yeah, I was I was overwhelmed by people's support. I mean I think you know that's when you definitely and you'll have found that as well, you know when you were ill it's surprising people that that sometimes come into your life or feature more heavily. Um and I'll always treasure that. I mean I I've, I've got you know really deep friendships with people now who kind of just showed up out of the blue. Um so you know that was incredible. But I think Yeah, I just wonder if they just kind of mirrored how I was trying to deal with it by sort of making a joke.
0: Did at any point during the therapy you doubt that you were going to come through it?
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think my overriding fear was that I'd I'd found out what I'd found out. Um, My light bulb moment had come too late. And I just, I remember thinking that was such a shame because I really wanted to see what life would be like with that new sense of purpose and confidence. So, yeah, and it was usually in the middle of the night, you know, when you're lying on your own in the dark, like we all do, that's when the spectres come out and just, you know, everything looks a bit rubbish. But, you know, I have to say, I've, I've had depression. I've had sort of, um, you know, in, in the in the 10 years running up to being diagnosed with breast cancer, I, I had very deep lows, where I didn't really want to be here and I never felt that bad when I was ill so it kind of and and actually the feedback from from people close to me said you you actually looked okay I mean I had no hair and I looked a bit sallow some days but I looked brighter than in the previous years where I was just very brittle and kind of lost um isn't that interesting yeah and I and I do I, I scare myself when I look at photographs of them because I thought I was rocking it and looking great and just smashing life, um, but I was running on empty for quite a long time, mm. um, and it and it wasn't it wasn't so much the single mum thing and running a business thing it it was just trying to make something work that was not possible, mm. and I think all the clues throughout my life to you know you just apply yourself get it done you can do it. I applied all of that learning to this situation and and it was futile and so I think that's why I gave even more of myself if that makes sense because mm-hmm. um, because my learning was just you know just dig deep just go for it keep going and it and it's I'm much more intuitive now so if I feel really really exhausted or cause I'm, I'm terrible for not eating on time and you know I'll just I'll just see the day ahead of me know that i've got five meetings and and i'll say yes to even more things and i'll just plow through it mm. and i know that's really bad um so on, on days like that i go stop have something to eat or eat miso soup or just something to give you some energy and then keep going because you can't run on empty i i'm living proof of that yeah. um so whether it's well, physically it, it's or emotionally, running on
0: empty. Uh, exactly, physically or, or mentally. Yeah, for,
1: I mean, for yes. me, it was mentally because I knew I'd 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 done it for years. Yes. I just pushed myself, pushed myself,
0: yeah.
1: and I just think it's accumulation of years of doing. Yeah, that.
0: and the battery eventually. Yeah,
1: no, no one's capable of doing that.
0: No, no. So, and I think that's a realization that that, that a lot of people ultimately only have when they get sick in some way and and that's a terrible shame really isn't it yeah we all have to wait until till then you know that drive is so so significant that yeah you know it just blinds you to all yeah you know life reality yeah and and, uh,
1: but i think it's that power of thought over because you know actually what is reality you know there's your perception of reality and there's how you respond to your perception and that's that's the bit that I I mean it's hard work and it's rewiring and rerouting all the time. But that's the bit that I've been yeah. doing and how you for see the, the world and, and you
0: can yeah. see it many different ways. Yeah, exactly. And as you've you've said, you know, your view in the beginning was a very negative one.
1: Yeah. And you've come full me circle better. now. Yeah.
0: Um so, you're now healthy, you're looking great. You've obviously, it's been a big change for you yeah. emotionally. Yeah. Um, what's your reflections looking back on, on it? Um, and well,
1: to where no, you are now? Yeah, no, no regrets, no kind of, I wish I could have done that differently. I've, I think I've been through all of that. And I used to, that was so exhausting, just you know, overanalyzing everything and trying to work out how I could micromanage the outcome of everything. Oh my God, no, I just, I don't even bother now. I've saved myself so much time. I feel like now I've got the toolkit. So even if I am having a day where it, I'm kind of being drawn back into slightly old way of thinking, I can hear it now and I can sense it and I, and actually physically feel it. And uh, so i have a word with myself. Um, yeah. Focus on something different, or you know, a different way of looking at it. And uh, and you know, the day looks a bit different after that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I find it really exciting. It's it's just it's it's almost like having a. It sounds so trite to say it's a second chance. I don't feel that. It's it's just a different way of it's experiencing a sort of a life
0: in a way. Yeah, it is. Yes.
1: Because my life is my life and it's not going to ever be any different to this point. Um, and that's great. I actually really wouldn't change anything, but it's it's exciting now. And there was a while where I thought, oh, I wish I had could apply this thinking, you know. But,
0: to things that in in the past,
1: yeah. Yeah. And just buy back some more time. But I think, well, actually, it happens when it happens because that's the evolution of it all. And, and the reality is maybe sometimes it never happens for people and you are stuck in beliefs and values and
0: yeah the, 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 the destructive really, yeah
1: and I, and I really find that in the uh you know some of the charity work that I do is with a it, it's a suicide respite and I, I see that every time I go there you know that's a reminder on a weekly basis that you know perception of real experiences um so I'm, I'm not decrying that at all and sometimes incredibly challenging experiences is, is where the power is. It's it's how you perceive them and, and frame them in your mind. Yes. Um and I and I think, you know, there's evidence obviously all over the world of people overcoming incredible adversity and challenge and trauma and, and having amazing lives and a positive spin yeah. on it. So it's absolutely possible. So what would
0: you say you've learnt from all this?
1: I was gonna say keep listening to yourself and and try and really feel the answers to things because I think I got sort of in a trench of thinking a certain way because I thought that's how I was supposed to behave and think and and I think that's ultimately why I got ill because I, I you know I was I was literally swimming against the tide and and everything just feels easier and calmer well po- and possible you know so so a lot of things that I would have just shut down in my head because they were someone like me doesn't do that it's like well why not so I'm, I'm excited about what the next well let's say 30 years mm. and why not? or 40 yeah, yeah. you know I'm, I mean I'm really excited to see what that what that looks like do you,
0: do you feel in some way it's almost like a massive load has been lifted yeah and that suddenly you haven't got to carry that yeah baggage of exactly of having to sort of Present yeah this positive face when you exactly. never felt that
1: way. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think there's definitely a freedom in being you, in being authentic. And that means, you know, if you're having a crappy day, to say, I'm just not feeling it today. Yeah. I feel really rubbish.
0: Yeah. And it's only a day.
1: And it's only a day. Knowing it will pass, <laughs> because that's what we've all experienced, right? Yes. It's like, that will be tomorrow. I'll feel completely different. Yes. I mean, I had a terrible day yesterday. Yes. You know, the weather's a bit rubbish i kind of a bit prone to if it's grey and miserable, then that's I kind of fit in with that. <clears throat> and I, was, I, I knew I was doing it. I was looking at really small, inconsequential things, and they were big, you know, yesterday. I thought, well, tomorrow's going to be different. Mm. So I'm just going to let it go, not beat myself up. Because it, it sometimes does feel very hard to think positively about something that's, you know, and I, I think it's good to recognise that, you know, some things you're not meant to feel good about trust your response to something I mean I think my my biggest learning is just trust your gut uh, I think when you go against that things start to go wrong and whether it's a physical illness mental illness you can usually probably trace it back to somewhere where you didn't trust your own feelings around something and and that's what's so beautiful you know we're all really different and we're all motivated and um you know perceive things differently and that's that's really great and exciting
0: Yes. So to anybody who's listening, who's facing any kind of adversity in their life, what, what would you, you say to them based on your experience?
1: Um, I think I would say trying to take a step back from it and like breathe and just have a moment with it. And, and see what comes out of that. Because I think often just creating some space around a situation, you, you see it differently. Um, and that's hard because that's shutting out everybody else's opinions and media. And so, so yeah, I, I, think, I think that's possible. You know, no matter how bad it is, whether it's you've just lost somebody or you've been diagnosed with something, you know, really frightening, I think. It's about, I wonder why that's happened. That's where we grow. It's, it's sort of um,
0: challenging. i and recognising that you can't control or fight everything. You have yeah.
1: to yeah. Well, so, deal
0: with the reality rather than yeah. fighting the reality. Yeah,
1: it's so, it, it is really free emotionally I'm immersed in it.
0: So what's next for you? What's, what's What are we looking forward to?
1: Well, now, now that you've made me think about it. I, I, I'd quite like to look at the stuff that I was writing. Um, I think that, for me, that would feel like a massive achievement and I'd honoured something that I've always wanted to do. Because mm, I think that's a big part of,
0: you know, Well, it's expressing learning. the real you, isn't it? Which which I think you've said is
1: suppressed. Yeah. It oh. is suppressed. No, it really is. I've, I've probably suppressed it today. You know, I'm still, yeah, really, I'm, I'm interested to why I'm still doing that. So maybe I should just start and let it flow and see what happens. Um, so that that would definitely be something because that's always been...
0: Well, you're, you're an inspiration for so many people, and um, so many people I'm sure, listening to this because what you've been through has been incredibly challenging but um, I'm sure the next 30 years or more yeah. is going to be a lot more positive for you.
1: <laughs> Let's hope so. Even more positive.
0: Yeah, exactly. Thanks,
1: thanks, thanks so much. much. Thanks, Simon.
0: Thank you. We talk about the gift of adversity in this podcast, but it's hard to imagine how battling this brutal disease could be considered this way. So it's a tribute to Sharon's resilience and determination that she was able to come through and define it as a positive part of her personal growth. For anyone battling cancer or any other serious illness, Sharon's story inspires and gives us hope that recovery can signal a new beginning and finding one's true self. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Turning the Tables and I look forward to seeing you next time. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and be sure to listen out for the next episode where I again will be exploring with my guests how they turned adversity into advantage. See you next time. Go safely.